first let me say thank you, Kevin, for doing that. I've known about Hazel's life. I read all those uh, in the Schlesinger back in the 1970s. And it should be a small comfort to people to know that there is the currently being established a National Women's Suffrage Museum in the prison. That has now been con being converted, and they're doing fundraising for a national uh, monument to that. So that should be pretty exciting. You know, I come to this presentation from an interesting perspective, I think, perhaps different than than um, many other topics that I've often taken up. Because uh, while I am a historian, I also, the more and more I looked at the topic today, realized that I also come from the perspective of being a legislator, of having spent five decades in the Capitol, either as a lobbyist for women's issues, a staff person briefly, and a legislator. And um, so it gives me a different perspective on early women who actually held office, and I'll bring that up at a couple of different points. The um, stories you've heard, I'm glad he's got pictures, I don't. Um, but we've heard a lot about the general topic of the era and those issues, and so I'll try not to repeat some of that as we go through some of this. But there, I'm representing, God, I hate to say this, I'm the old radical from the 60s and 70s, and here I am being the one talking about the women who are in the mainstream while Kevin gets to talk about the radicals, you know, who used to be my heroes, more or less. But so it goes. So I'm going to be talking about particularly women who chose to participate in the more mainstream political system rather than those who were on the radical uh, fringe. But they all had to work together to make suffrage work, and we should acknowledge that, that, that it really takes that wide variety of perspectives really to push this issue forward as it goes on. So I'm not going to repeat a lot of that. But I would say that, um, you know, from the point of view of women being elected to office, Jeanette Rankin was not the first person to be elected to political office in Montana. Territorial women did vote in the state of Montana, particularly in issues that were related to school elections. Um, and that was primarily because women were considered at that time to have a special affinity for children. And so it seemed appropriate that they might be able to vote in issues that had to do with schools. In 1882, two women ran and were elected as the first county superintendents of schools. This is the 1880s. Women don't have the vote. Uh, in Montana, Alice Nichols and Helen Clark are these two women. And one of them, Helen Clark, held the office of Lewis and Clark's county superintendent of instruction for three terms. She's a very interesting woman. Um, her mother was Pagan. Her father was white. She went to a convent school. She was considered to be very elegant, refined. Um, and she had the support of the ruling class in Helena. Wilbur Sanders secured a teaching position for her in Helena and was really the base of her support for election when she ran for county superintendent. She was elected three times. But there was a strong anti-Indian sentiment uh, in Helena against her as well. And some people, even including some of the prominent women, refused to have their children educated by someone who was of mixed race. Um, from the perspective of uh, women's nature, European women's nature, it was specifically assumed that, uh, again, women had a special sense for children. And so many unmarried or widowed women went into the field of education until they were married. And as many of you know, they were at that point required to resign because it wasn't considered appropriate for married women or pregnant women uh, to be working. The job of that educator at home, school, or as school superintendent was considered appropriate to women's special nature here. Uh, and it's not surprising that women would run first for county superintendents and then for state superintendent. And the first of those to run for state superintendent 
is after the after the suffrages won in Montana, May Trumper. And I don't know as much about her as I'd like to know, but she did run and was elected along with Rankin. And uh, the two women we're going to talk about who ran for uh, the legislature. She served 12 years as the state superintendent of public instruction and began that tradition of electing only really women to that position. Um, in that era, she is really, any of you know who was elected as the one man who's ever held the job? See how old you all are. Ed Organbright back in the 70s is the only man who's ever held that job since. Well, Trumper, May Trumper was a champion of educational reform as part of this reform era. So her real focus was on the professionalization of teaching. She instituted a number of teacher training programs and teacher certification exams and requirements. Before that time, in a lot of cases, particularly the more rural start, if you had a little bit of an education, maybe you graduated high school, you could be a teacher. So it really wasn't considered to be so much a profession as sort of women's uh, having a special affinity for it, and uh, so there weren't high standards for it. Trump is also the one who standardized the 180-day school year, which we still have, and the first state equalization of funding uh, bills to go through the legislature. She was also very concerned about equal pay, which we'll hear more about later, uh, because at that time women are basically paid half of what men are uh, for teaching because they're not considered to be primary breadwinners and don't need the money. So as you've heard from the suffrage campaign, Suffrage issue was raised first by the wife of the first territorial governor in Montana. So it's an issue that's been around a long time, not just in Montana, but in the West. Uh, it's an on-again, off-again kind of thing, and it really isn't until the teens that there's this national push in the West for suffrage. And the energy that's created by the passage of suffrage in Washington in 1910 really brings the focus onto states like Montana as well. Um, and the groups that are working on this really is this broad coalition of really mainstream organizations. These are the State Suffrage Association, of course, there are a number of men's suffrage groups, the General Federation of Women's Clubs, which is the largest organization in the country for women, the American Association of University Women, which I'm still a member of, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, my grandmother was a president of it, um, that made a successful push for suffrage to pass the legislation in the legislature, which then put it on that 1914 ballot. So now that you've heard about uh, Jeanette and Hazel, let me talk about two other women who joined Alice Nichols, Helen Clark, um, Eloise Knowles, whom we're not going to talk about, Jeanette Rankin and Mae Trumper to run for office. This year, um, well, the 19, uh, this year is the centennial, actually, of women holding elected office in the legislature, Maggie Smith Hathaway and Emma Engels. So I want to talk a little bit about how they managed to do that, and perhaps you can compare them in terms of their skills and their political philosophy to what you heard about Hazel. So Maggie Smith Hathaway comes from Ohio originally, and she comes from a really interesting family. Her father is a prominent Methodist minister, and a lot of the social reform movements come out of that Methodist church, Protestant um, moral campaign. Uh, and her mother is a suffrage activist and the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So she's raised in this family that is very outspoken about social reform uh, issues of the day. And as a child, she becomes an organizer of the Methodist youth group, the Epworth League. And that provides her the opportunities, even as a child, to write, which she had a passion for, to speak publicly, and even to address conventions as a child. So clearly she has a lot of interesting abilities um, from the early age. She graduates from college, she becomes a teacher, and then when her family moves to Helen in 1884, she comes here, takes a teaching position, and keeps on with her organizing work, particularly within the Methodist Church. 
Maggie Smith Hathaway serves 29 years as a teacher and a principal and a county superintendent of schools in Montana, 29 years, including two terms where she's elected as county superintendent for Lewis and Clark County. Her educational leadership is really, again, I think quite amazing. And following the tradition of Trumper that we were talking about, she's the first to really systematize um, many aspects of, of education. She develops the first systems and standards that are written and held accountable for both teachers and students. She creates teacher training institutes, writes school board policies, uh, sponsors <coughs> rigorous academies that focus on the development of moral character for teachers, which was written into contracts and may still be written into contracts for teachers to this day. As county superintendent, she published the first report in 1905 on the state of education as she saw it. This included her analysis of teacher pay differences between men and women. At that time, in Helena, uh, men who were teachers were paid $155.20 a month. Women are paid $81.90 a month, which is about 50%. From this recognition came her real commitment to work on these issues of pay equity later in her life. From 1909 to 1911, she's the state leader of the Montana Teachers Association, and in 1909, she's actually their legislative lobbyist. Uh, and it's not her first paid lobbying gig. In 1907, she's the lobbyist for the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, her mother was state president, and uh, a natural role, role for her. She really insisted that the legislature, quote, put themselves on record on moral issues, including prohibition bills addressing both alcohol and cigarettes. Her efforts in this period of her life aren't just substantial in terms of educational leadership, but I think it's where she really honed her gifts, as most of us who go into political life do, as a writer, as a speaker. In fact, they called her the Montana Hummer. She was considered quite charming as a speaker. Uh, a good organizer, an innovator. She wasn't afraid of challenges. She was not afraid of conflict, an absolute requirement if you're going to be in political life and uh, of being in that public sphere, which was certainly in contrast to the expectations of the norms for women of that era. To be over in that public sphere was really a pretty radical thing to do. Her professional life ended in 1911 when she got married at a late age to Henry Hathaway, who was the Deputy State Superintendent of Public Instruction. It ended after six months when he had a heart attack. Uh, he had heart disease. She, at that point, left Helena, moved to Stevensville to live with her family, and after her parents died, inherited the farm. She was going to retire, but her mother, with the WCTU, pushed her back into the speaking circuit, and within a matter of months, she's back in uh, action. In 1913, she actually goes to work for the legislature as a legislative staff secretary to the House Committee on Public Morals, Charities, and Reform, learning about how the insight of how the legislative process works, getting to know the cast of characters on a very personal level. Little did she know that six years later, she would chair this committee as a first-term legislator. She began speaking extensively on the national and international uh, level on educational reform, suffrage, and temperance, again, from that mainstream kind of perspective. She devoted herself to the 1914 campaign for the passage of suffrage in the state of Montana. She traveled 5,700 miles, earning her the nickname the Whirlwind. Um, and she argued that women should have the vote on the grounds that they were taxpayers and also that women brought a greater moral influence to public life, the whole social housekeeping um, argument that actually is the one that wins the day. So it's really a testament to her effectiveness and her campaign skills that in her home county of Ravalli, it cast the highest percentage of votes for suffrage in the state of Montana. She never let a vote 
get away from her. In 1915, the legislative session, uh, she again served as a full-time lobbyist for a group that I think should be explored far more, I mean, it's never mentioned anywhere, but in relationship to her, and it should be, the Legislative Council of Montana Women. This is a 10,000-member strong coalition of Montana women's organizations, including the state suffrage organizations, the WCTU, AAUW, General Federation of Women's Clubs, Montana Federation of Negro Women's Clubs, and others with this moral reform agenda. They had two full-time lobbyists work in the legislature. This powerful coalition, with her skills, her lobbying skills, her knowledge of the inside and how it works, and her relationships with legislators and other players, contributes to their success in that session, before there are any women in the legislature's representatives, to passing the first law giving women uh, mothers equal rights with fathers over guardian, guardianship of their children. Because at that time, married women were not legal persons under the law if they were married. Their husband was that legal person. The husband and wife are one and that one is the husband. So there's a whole set of laws that try to address that. This is one of them. And secondly, they passed a bill that started granting um, small amounts of money to indigent mothers who were caring for children. With the success of a suffrage, it shouldn't be a surprise that these women use these skills and abilities, like Rankin, to run for elected office. Uh, Rankin, in fact, called Hathaway and asked if she would work on her congressional campaign. And instantly, Hathaway both said no, they were of different parties, but, quote, in a flash, decided to run for office herself. And she really capitalized on all that activism around suffrage, prohibition, and moral reform in her campaign. So she was elected as a Democrat from her Valley County in 1917 when uh, she finished second. At that point, you were elected by county, and they had two seats for Valley County, and so the two top uh, vote-getters would go to the legislature. Um, she ran on a platform of support for agriculture and moral issues, and she said, moral issues are the core of politics. As a side note, in the five western states in 1916, all of whom had passed uh, these suffrage issues, 11 women were elected to legislative office, nine of the 11 being Democrats. So this is a phenomenon across the country. The two women who are in Montana again, Maggie, Mrs. Hathaway is a Democrat from Rue Valley, and Mrs. Emma Engels, a Republican from Flathead County. And while they are of opposing parties, you really see that they both come from the same background, very like-minded on issues, and seem to work very collaboratively with each other to move issues through the legislature. Emma Engels comes to politics, as does Hathaway, through her professional life. She married Clayton Engels in 1879 and helped him establish both a farm and the newspaper in Flathead County that we all know as the Flathead or the Kalispell Interlake, where she wrote all the editorials, she handled sales and circulation, and a newspaper competitor said she was, quote, a clever and interesting writer who occasionally wielded a caustic pen. And this was certainly the case, and you see it in, in her campaign, uh, against a sitting judge for his arbitrary handling of a murder case. This judge had demanded an apology, not of her, but had her husband arrested, again, the husband and the wife are one, uh, and demanded this public apology. Well, he didn't get it, and in fact, she reprinted her previous accusations with more detail. She does, in fact, get him thrown out of office, uh, very successful, and it makes it really builds a base for her as a as a outspoken advocate for both prohibition and suffrage. Because as she said of him, his decisions were always in favor of the last drink of whiskey. Unfortunately, Mr. Engels, um, sort of like Mr. Hathaway, was in poor health, and he died very soon after, leaving her uh, both the farm, where she became a real pioneer in agriculture in the Kalispell area, the first to do irrigation in the area and introducing alfalfa as a crop. 
So in many ways, there's a real parallel and background of the two of them. They're both widows, um, they both have farms, um, and they have an adequate income uh, to be able to support themselves and this passion for social reform. So in 1914, Engels sells the farm and really devotes herself to suffrage and other political actives, activities within the Republican Party. She takes on the leadership roles of being even the chair of the Republican Party in uh, the Flathead area, and with the success of suffrage, decides to run for the hot Montana House and is elected twice before she decided to retire. And in the legislature, their roles are really quite parallel. Both of them serve as both members and chair, depending on which party is in control, of the uh, Committee on Public Morals, Char uh, Charities, and Reform, you know, a women's place, the, the Children's Committee, where they sponsored, uh, both of them, uh, bills uh, for ratification of the uh, federal constitutional amendment for suffrage. They both call for prohibition. But for Engels, perhaps her greatest achievement was the creation of the Mountain Home Vocational School for Girls here in Helena in her second term, which was where uh, girls were sent for uh, care and rehabilitation after they had been committed by the court for various forms of behavior that was not considered appropriate to women for the most part. Um, we don't have a rich record of her particular writings or perspectives on things, unfortunately. She didn't leave a lot of that. But we do know that she viewed her life in much the same way as Hathaway and other activists often did, saying, God put me on this, his anvil and hammered me into shape. The things that seemed so hard to bear at the time have proven to be the stepping stones to a larger, richer life. So you've heard a representation at breakfast about the 1918 legislative session, and I won't repeat a lot of that. But I was really struck when I was down in the basement of the legislature looking at the, our legislative journals for these sessions that we're discussing here. And um, yes, it was about seed, sedition, suffrage, and sobriety. But I would also add that it seemed to be the period in which the establishment of the basic institutions that we now know as government were uh, completed, advocated for, led by these two particular women. And these institutions, as we go through them, you will recognize many of them because they are still here. The 1919 legislative session was controlled by Democrats, Hathaway's party, and it dealt with a lot of these World War II issues, a lot of which you heard, but some others included the establishment of a Veterans Welfare Commission and a pension fund, the sedition issues, a lovely statute prohibiting the ex exhibition of the red flag or banner, it was a felony, requiring English only, um, and a lot of health issues, including a lot addressing venereal disease in veterans, and establishing a state sanitarium for drug addiction, and of course the flu epidemic of 1918. Um, and some of the other issues there that had to do with uh, building this infrastructure of governance that I think are important to look at really reflect the fact that the, the community all believed that it should be uh, a public commitment, not a private commitment, to do this work. So the establishment of the state sanitarium and things of that sort. Um, both of them worked on issues in her first session. I would say Hathaway did things such as her first introduction of a bill the first day was in support of the League of Nations. Um, so they really uh, stepped right in there. She sat quietly for a couple of days in this all-male world. But uh, on our opening day, the governor doesn't even mention it, doesn't seem to be addressed anywhere that there are, in fact, uh, two women now in the session. The press eventually starts to report on them when she makes her first maiden speech on the restriction of minors in pool halls, and when she takes the chair of the House. This is a big deal when you are asked to take the chair of the House. 
and she did it. And the press says that um, it's the first time in the history of Montana that a woman sat in the speaker's chair and was accorded a thunderous ovation. This is a big deal. I can tell you as a legislator, new legislators handshake when they do the first speech, and many of them never take the chair because of the responsibility involved. Um, and to be the first of your kind constantly watched is um, remarkable in their strength for both of them. They took on issues such as limiting uh, women to an eight-hour day and a six-day-a-week um, workforce, and that was actually objected by a number of working women who were domestics and who had to work, and so it was interesting to watch them be on both sides of that issue. Here's ones that I think are important for those interested in education. The control of state lands for the welfare of children. This is where we are still today, that the income from state lands supports public schools. Thank you, uh, Mrs. Hathaway. And the Children's Aid Law um, that we talked about earlier, which is part of the Federal Shepherd Towner Act, um, working with women of moral character, um, was a major issue for her, both as a legislator and then in her work as she runs the Bureau of Child Protection. My favorite is, uh, of course, prohibition, and in that they really stood their ground, both of them, and in a funny incident, Missoula had a representative, Higgins, whom you probably remember, Bob, uh, who in the floor debate shook his fist at Hathaway and said, this is no place for a woman, go home and stay there. While everybody else stood up, as we would do, and, and called for him to apologize on, for his outburst, and she said, I want no apology, I just consider the source. But later, <laughs> When the federal prohibition was up for a vote on the floor, he was quite drunk on the floor, which I got to tell you was a common thing up into the 70s, and he wasn't paying too much attention to the vote, so she just nudged him and urged him to vote green, and he did, so he actually voted for prohibition. <laughs> she was called by her colleagues Mary Hazerway, but it's a good way, champion of women and children, and these two I love. A good fellow can give and take it like a man, and secondly, she was referred to as the biggest man in the house. Uh, speaking for both her and Engels, this is what she said. We have, a we have justified our presence here. We came as pioneers and had to establish our, our status. Truly remarkable um, in their achievement on that. Now, after um, Hathaway retired from the legislature, she took up a very important post. She took up the job of being um, the chief administrator appointed by the governor in 1925 to 1937 of the Bureau of Child Protection, which would have been established in 02 as the Bureau of Child and Animal Protection, uh, responsible for, here's the laundry list, all aspects of child welfare from neglect, incest, mental health, crippled children, orphanages, caseworkers, courts, adoption, foster care, education, child labor, launching big brothers and sisters, writing annual reports, uh, and uh, interpreting the new federal uh, Shepherd Towner Act which I have some relationship to because as I was going through my mother's things, I found this from 1923, the Children's Health Conference uh, health care report for my mother, who uh, it is the Shepherd Towner Act and asks all these questions about, is your child healthy? Do they do this? Do they do that? You're welcome to have a look at it. Um, and um, all of that professionalization of the social work uh, industry is part of what we now have as the Department of, Children, of Health and Human Services. She really professionalized that, brought it together, and created it in a way that, in many ways, you would recognize now. In summary, let me say that I think Hathaway had a really extraordinary career as a, both as a teacher, as a legislator, and particularly as the head of the Child Protection Bureau. 
I think that being driven, as many people were at that era, around social reform, she took that rhetoric and the moral philosophy of it, turned it into law, turned it into institutions. So regardless of your judgment on how you would view some of these initiatives, I could recite this amazing and shocking uh, speech that she gave relative to sedition when she went out on the doors and would call people who supported the IWW traitors, etc. Um, she was very much in that line of support for the war. Whether How we view those now is one thing, but clearly they were the leading edge of social reform of their day, and they left Montana with numerous institutions and policies that we would recognize today as a being of value and that are really the basis of our our state's institutions to this day. So happy to answer questions. Thank you. I'd like to open the floor for questions for either presenter. Um, and then if you could continue to use the microphone. Does anyone have a question? Oh, does this session oh, come on. three, though. They didn't like each other. I, I read all of, of this stuff at the Schlesinger years ago, too. And there really was not a fondness between some of these women. I mean, they really did see Hazel's activities as a threat to the acceptability of these policies among the mainstream. And so they would not have uh, found themselves in a common era. So the woman going out and pulling her off the White House fence was because she really viewed her as a, a literal threat to their ability to convince Congress and the present that they were respectable women um, in support of mainstream values. So it's, it's interesting, but it takes the radicals really to keep pushing that issue at that, that point. That's the thing. Well, conversation. Um, that's the thing I, I really found from doing the work I was doing is how many different strategies there were. You know, I think you hear of the suffrage movement, you just think everybody marches in tune, but even the, the Christian Women's the Temperance Union had a, you know, was for suffrage also, but they also had these other things that they wanted to get through that were related to not only alcoholism, but prostitution. So it's fascinating. You could take any of those 15 or 20 different groups and see how a strategy can be developed out of them, which is the, the coolest thing I found, I thought. So. Well, and in, in that line, one of the biggest disagreements within the major National American Women's Suffrage Association and the pressure of this on Rankin, among others, was over how much these women would advocate for issues of uh, prohibition because they felt that that would cost them votes, and it, and it did. And so they were really urged to be for suffrage and back off on all of these other issues until that was achieved. But some of them, as you can see, with both um, Emma Engels and Mar Maggie Smith Hathaway, they took both of them together the entire time, partly because they were based in the WCTU, which I was pledged to as a baby. Um, <laughs> you know, um, they really pushed both of those issues and this entire platform of social reform, which I think is, so they were not singularly at issue. Now the credit he didn't give to the Women's Party, but should, is that the Women's Party is the one that said, the vote is not adequate to achieve equity and that we need to have an Equal Rights Amendment. So they declared that very early, I mean instantly after the achievement of suffrage. Yes? When did the uh, child labor laws come into effect? Well, they're starting to come into effect as child protection in this era. I mean, it's just, pick a topic. Right. 
you know, I don't care if it's health care, prostitution, things people shouldn't be talking about, getting women matrons in jails, issues around prostitution as an economic issue, getting sewing classes for women who are prostitutes so they can make an honorable living. Pick your topics. They're in there on just about every single one. And, and when Hazel Hunkins was leading the six-point group in England, uh, child welfare, uh, those issues, uh, six points were the six points they were going after, child welfare issues, child, you know, work, uh, equal pay for social workers, a lot of those issues become the big issues for her when she's in England. So. I mean, the part that is, you know, drives you a little nuts in here is that they really did buy totally into all of this anti-immigrant stuff, um, requiring Americanization courses to be taught in schools, uh, English only, all of that really is integrated into much of the, many of these women's organizations' basic platforms, too, is that they, they really are part of the mainstream of political thinking at the time. You may want to think, they were different, special, and above it. Well, they aren't. Yeah. I'm constantly fascinated by the intersections between the temperance movement driven by women and the suffragist movement driven by women. Um, can either of you maybe speak a little bit more to sort of like the germination of how those two ideologies ended up getting so connected to each other? the practical reality of women's lives. As the WCTU said, uh, they considered the ballot the home protection measure. That's because of, as women are not legal persons under the law in the same way, so uh, whether it's in guardianship of their children, owning a property, and you get into the Married Women's Property Acts in the 1840s, which are the core of the beginning suffrage movement, um, uh, men making agreements around consideration around sex, coming home drunk, the husband could take all of her assets, everything she'd inherited, gamble it, give it away, and she had no recourse legally. Um, so all of those issues really were for the WCTU, the issue of how do you protect women and the family in the home unless you have the vote. You but can't. if you have the vote, then why would you need to be protected, I mean, theoretically, from alcohol? I mean, alcohol was present in a way we just, you know, for all the drinking that's going on these days, you can't even begin to conceive. I mean, it was what everybody drank. Children drank watered-down alcohol. Alcohol was on every corner, and so it was um, such a huge factor in men losing, going to the bar, and uh, yeah. losing all of their earnings, and she's at home with no food. Right, Angela's ashes, basically. Yeah, yeah. you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So that's what puts the two of them together, although, as you know, in Montana, there are plenty of places that supported suffrage that would not support prohibition. Right. Butte. <laughs> oh, <that's how> <laughs> uh, Jeanette Rankin wasn't known for her um, good and chummy political allies, and um, her story overshadows a lot of them. So, what was how how did she was she a mentor to some of these? They were in the field together. Clearly, they were all in the field together. She was a paid organizer from the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She's not here all the time. She comes in after the Washington campaign, which she's a leader on, comes in, does this and that, drives around, is a leader, gets most of the press. But I would say she's not a loner, and she certainly has connections they don't. Her brother is Wellington Rankin, for God's sakes, who underwrites all of her work, is a political leader in his own right, and so I don't think she stands outside that tradition as being a loner. And in fact, the women in Helena, who are particularly prominent, 
are often um, friends of hers as well. But she's not here as a permanent resident in the way these women are, that's true. I mean, this really isn't her home in that regard. I just wanted to mention something, a plug for the Montana Memory Project. Uh, Jeanette Rankin's group set up shop in Butte, but across the street was the women's group in opposition to suffrage. And uh, we just scanned a whole bunch of documents from that group, and they're fascinating, because it lists every reason why women shouldn't vote. Like, I didn't marry my man so he couldn't make decisions for me kind of thing. But it's fascinating because you hear these stories about suffrage, mm -hmm. but to have almost the opposite side across the street and to see that perspective also kind of plays into the bigger story too. So, Well, because often they thought they should protect, I mean, it's, you know, such a mixed bag. Let's protect women by passing these laws that say how many hours they can work and kind of dealing with some of the child labor and abusive labor. But of course they exempt domestic service, which is where most women are working. So on one hand, they're being protective of them, and on the other hand, there are women saying, we don't need to be protected, just give us equal rights. All right, thank you so Thanks. much. Thanks.